Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreau. I'm Sarah Blakemore. On this episode today, we'll be diving into research that could potentially be the biggest life-saving change in 40 years in organ donation and transplantation. Wow. All right. And we're also going to be talking about social anxiety and how to cope with it, especially after the pandemic. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. All that and more on The Gifted Life. Hang in there. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, we are excited. Some new research coming our way. Um, we're going to get the inside scoop here on this episode. We have LSU mechanical engineering professor, Dr. Ram Devaretti, joining us now by phone. Hey, doctor. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we appreciate it. So, Joey, you were pretty excited about what was coming out of his research. I am, and, and I'm, it excites me when I see someone, especially someone in a different field, mm-hmm. that's uh, also excited and passionate about the same things that I am, and that's, that's saving lives mm-hmm. through organs transplanted. So, uh, I'm curious, Doc, so what, you know, being an, a mechanical engineer kind of throws me off here. So, what drew your interest into organ and tissue donation? <laughs> right. Um, that's, uh, I guess, let me tell you a little bit about myself. So I, I came from India. So after I finished my mechanical engineering undergraduate degree, I was applying to graduate schools in the U.S. And I got into University of Colorado at Boulder uh, for my master's. And there I was trying to help uh, the Navy create better combustors, you know, better trash burning machines, so to speak. And that was essentially computational work. So I was spending time in front of a computer. And one thing that I wanted to do when I was growing up to be a mechanical engineer was to get my hands dirty, or break things, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. be in a lab. So then I decided to apply for grad, for you know, PhD, doctoral studies, and I applied to different schools, and I got this email from a professor in Minnesota. Uh, he said, you know, my lab is trying to do this uh, freezing work in tissues and biological systems, and at least in India, we don't do biology after 10th grade. So once you decide mm-hmm. you're going to become an engineer, your biology stops at 10th grade. Mm. So I emailed back the professor and said, you know, I'm, my biology is really at high school level. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'm, I'm good enough for this. And he said something that I think is true for my research today, which is we use engineering principles on biological systems. So then I thought that was kind of cool. I like engineering principles and biological systems are interesting, new, back then at least, 95. So then I said, okay, I was young and naive, I guess, and I jumped in. <laughs> and, and I went to Minnesota, and I spent the first year and a half, two years in the medical school, trying to get myself understand at least some of the biology. And so then, from then basically, 95, from my graduate school work, which essentially back then we were trying to make measurements of what happens to cells and tissues when we freeze them. The idea being, if I understand this process better, maybe we can model it, we can predict it, we can minimize the damage, and we can store these organs for long periods of time. And that problem still exists. 
I mean, this is a long-standing problem. When we freeze anything, right, we, we do this every day. We put water in the refrigerator, and next morning it becomes an ice cube, mm-hmm. right? And that ice cube in, inside a tissue, when an ice cube forms inside a cell, those ice cubes tend to expand, which is the reason why ice floats on water, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's very unique in that sense. Uh, a solid substance is less dense than a liquid substance. What that means is water that is in the liquid phase occupies less volume than ice in the solid phase. So imagine I'm, I'm a bag of, I'm, I'm a cell right now, I'm a bag of water, and I freeze it. When I freeze it, my water wants to occupy more volume. And that causes damage, right? And mm-hmm. that ice crystallization damage. And that has been the fundamental problem. How do we prevent damage to tissues and organs when we freeze them? And when we freeze them, water wants to become ice. That's mm-hmm. not something we can prevent. Yeah. So that's essentially how I got into here, you know, to how do I minimize this as an engineering problem? What can we do as engineers to, you know, understand this process better and hopefully get towards a stage where we can transport organs over longer distance than we can currently do. I was fortunate to uh, to go to Boston, actually Harvard Medical, uh-huh. and I was the OPO version, the organ procurement organization, the uh, rubber meets the road type person. And then I, you mm-hmm. know, speaking with a lot of scientists there, and mm-hmm. uh, the word vitrification was was mm-hmm. uh, pretty new to me, uh, mm-hmm. and it was used quite a bit. And I, so this sounds a lot like what I had, uh, the, the presentations and the conversations that I'd had in Boston. So is that basically right. what you're trying to accomplish? That is the, that is the end goal. Now, vitrification essentially is just a fancy way of saying you form glass. Right. So what, so what it does here is this. If you can take water and if I can freeze it really fast, it's basically if you can remove heat from it, at a very fast rate, then it doesn't form ice. It forms what we call as glass, which is vitrification. And that has been shown to be less damaging to cells. Right? Now, that is a physics. We, know, we understand that physics. But the problem, again, in terms of engineering is, how do I assume I have an organ, which is you know, at least inches in size? Now, I want to freeze it really rapidly. We're talking about freezing at tens of thousands of degrees C per minute. So how do we do that in a large organ? If we don't do it, the problem with vitrification is this. We can't have partial vitrification. There's no partial success. If you, do, if you don't get full vitrification, essentially you've got glass, you've got ice formation, which is essentially damaging to the tissue. Right? Right. And so that is the engineering challenge. The physics is well established. We, we know we can take water, at least we can take a micro droplet of water, and if I freeze it really fast, it forms glass. When I say glass, you can see through it. It's mm-hmm. not like the ice cube that we get from the refrigerator, right, which is opaque. You know, so, so we want to do something similar in a large organ. Basically, how do we form glass in an, in an organ? And the ultimate goal is to, like you said, have organs that are transplantable in longer periods of time. Because now we're, you know, we have that time clock. Once yep. you recover an organ, yep. that time starts yep. where we have to transplant it. So the ultimate yep. goal is to have more organs for transplantation for longer periods of time to help as many people as possible. Absolutely. So I think you probably know, know this better than I do. Uh, so hundreds of thousands of people are waiting for organs mm-hmm. as we speak right now for donation in this country and in the world. And hundreds of thousands of people are dying every day for mm-hmm. natural causes around the world. The problem is if a person dies in India and if he or she has the liver that a patient in Chicago needs, how do we get it from India to Chicago within 
right now it's about four to six hours of travel mm-hmm. time, essentially after which point the organ becomes unusable. Right. How do we do that? How do we get it from India to where the patient is? And one, essentially the only way we can do it is by getting to a freezing, so storing it at low temperatures. And so how essentially that is the goal. That is the goal of saving lives that we're interested in. Just to expound upon what Sarah was talking about right now, you know, we're storing and transporting uh, at four degrees Celsius uh, in a, a preservation solution, so to speak. Ours, the one we use is the University of Wisconsin, um, which is a common one that's, that's used, you know, throughout this country at least. So what happens is, you know, let's say a liver, for instance, we, we flush the liver uh, so that the blood, all the blood products and everything flushes out so that there's no blood clots that can potentially form and cause further problems. And then we store it in the same solution, keep it at that same temperature, you know, four degrees, just above freezing. And then we put it on ice and and transport it that way. But of course, this only gives us, as you said, four to six hours in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, liver, maybe six hours. Kidneys have the longest. It's at 24 hours, but it's still a big challenge. You don't have all 24 hours. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes you're you're in a time crunch, you know, because you're getting through a list of you talked about 100,000 people. You're getting through a list that might include, you know, 12,000 or 10,000. And and the, and the most the most suitable candidate, like you said, you even use India as, a, as an example, could be out of the country or could be at a full, one of the corners of the country. And now by the time we get there, we don't have flights to get out. There's a lot of logistical problems right. in place, lo- too. Logistics mm-hmm. cause nightmares mm-hmm. to the organ donation transplant community, industry. Plus that I think four to six hours or 24 hours you mentioned includes the transplantation mm-hmm. surgery time. You've got to exactly. get the patient ready, prepped, and then transplanted. So all that becomes a, you know, bottle. So what you're talking about, you know, and getting to that ultimate goal of vitrification so what type of time frame would you say that you, you what are you guys projecting as possible uh, as far as being able to store it? Oh, yes. Brilliant question. But if you, so uh, <laughs> once I can get it to vitrification, once I can take an organ and freeze it. And now remember, there's another problem here. I still have to thaw it back out. Right. It's not just the freezing. Right. You have mm-hmm. to bring it back from minus 80 back to room temperature, flush it off all the chemicals and then transplant it. If you can solve those two problems, part one, freezing, part two, thawing, then essentially the timelines are infinite, right? I mean, if I I put it in the refrigerator, it essentially sits there till I need it. Assuming you don't, you know, if refrigerator works, right? (laughs) So so in essence, if I can solve it, if I can store it for a day, I can store it for 24 years or 240 years or whatever the timeline is. So yes, actually, if, if this works, I mean, you will solve the organ transplant problem, you know, for the world, not just for the U.S. Right, because what it would do is it would um, eliminate organs that are good for transplant that get discarded for whatever yeah. reason. It would eliminate that problem yeah. totally. Right. So, yeah, so things like I'm sorry, but things like like logistical, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. like like Hurricane Ida that mm-hmm. hit here, just yep. just uh, you know a couple months ago, right. we were in a tight time frame on with, you know, there's still, we still have to save as many lives as possible, but then you've got this hurricane bearing down on you. Uh, so you have to go at a quicker time frame because, because of safety, obviously. And so in these situations, I can imagine instead of 
us. So right now, just to back up a little bit, the rest of, of our current process is that it takes us on average 40 hours from the time a family says yes to the time we're in the operating room to be able to do that recovery. And, and that time frame includes the diagnostics on, mm-hmm. each of the, on each of the organs because we have to figure out which organs are viable. And then it includes, in most situations, finding the best home for that mm-hmm. potential recipient. Now, what this, and, I, and I'm getting, that's what excites me, mm-hmm. is because <laughs> it's not only just finding, right now we're finding the best home based on the logistics that we're working within, the timeframes that we're working within. I can imagine having no time frame. Right. And to be able to find, instead of a good match, the best. to find the, the perfect match. Clinically, yeah, Clinically, instead of logistically, match. yeah. And mm-hmm. now you're taking people off of the list, not just maybe for six, seven years, they might be taken off the list forever, mm-hmm. you know? So that's True. that's really, really exciting to me. So that's, you know, I'm just throwing that all in there. No, we're excited. Yeah. This is big no pressure, Doc. <laughs> Counting on you. Yeah. Yeah. No, not just me. There are lots of people. I mean, uh, Joe, you mentioned, I think, uh, Howard, that there's a, uh, there's a group at Harvard that's working with my advisor in Minnesota. They're, they got about $20 million from NSF uh, to address this problem. And they're addressing the thawing problem right, more than the freezing problem. Mm. Um, so essentially, like I said, you know, you still have to, once you store it, you still have to be able to thaw it out. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, it's going to, you can actually, you can do more damage during thawing just by the ice crystallization process. The same crystals that, you know, that form during freezing can also form during thawing if you don't do it correctly. And so, then, you know, you're back to square one. So just for, for, so where are your focuses and what are your big challenges that you guys are seeing specifically? Right. So the, the project that way we set it up, you know, so right now we still don't fully understand how this ice forms and how glass forms inside these tissues or organs. So we are trying to develop new methods of actually making these measurements inside these tissue systems that where traditional techniques don't work. So traditionally, people have put them under a microscope and you watch the ice formation. We can't do that if the tissue itself is hot. I can't watch what is happening inside a hot tissue. It's just not transparent enough optically. So we're trying to develop new methods uh, to make those measurements. I can go into further details. Uh, up to you guys. So, so I, I, you need I, I, yeah, so I'm kind of understanding. So instead of, so what, what we're seeing, what you're able to, to measure is everything on the surface level, the tissue that's on the Correct. surface level, but to actually right. get in as for the heart, the myocytes that are, that are deep down in there. Uh, so that's what you're trying to develop yeah. some kind of Correct. measurement you, for that. Exactly. How do you access what is happening within the tissue system rather than just optically on the outside? Mm. Or just a single cell level. We can do it at a single cell level, right? That's right. also not an issue. But I want to do it within an intact tissue, which is interacting within its environment, because we know they behave differently mm-hmm. than when they are within the organ or outside the organ, so mm-hmm. to speak. So I guess I was saying we're developing different methods. We have two different methods. One method is to measure how much heat comes out. And so there are some mathematical models we can use that, that will tell me what is happening to the tissue. And other one is to essentially, you know, create very, very, very small thermocouples. Think of it as temperature. So, you know, our thumb, well, first of all, how do you make temperature measurements? Right? We just want to make them to be so small that I can put them within an organ 
and then I can then correlate those temperature changes mm -hmm. to what is happening during the freezing process. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about the freezing process, and, and I mentioned uh, four degrees Celsius for the current trans transportation, uh, so where are you, what are you, what's your target? What is that okay, exactly? So, right, okay, so let's start with dating. So what do we do? So we take, an, we take a tissue out of cell, right? The first thing we do is we add chemicals to it. Now, why do we add chemicals? This is back in the 1940s, pure accident. They found that if you add chemicals to cells and you freeze them, the cells do better. Now, what kind of chemicals do we use? The short answer is pretty much everything has been thrown into the box. But mostly right now, DMSO, dimethyl sulfoxide, glycerol, and methanol for aquatic species are the most commonly used chemicals. So step one, we take a cell, we add chemicals to it. So essentially, we're changing the composition of the media the cells are in. And then we bring them down to four degrees or right above four degrees Celsius, or four to zero degrees Celsius, just when ice starts to form. Right? And then once ice forms, right, then you have to freeze them really, really rapidly. You, you basically, that zero degrees to minus 40 degrees Celsius, that's where the damage problem is. That's where the ice forms. That's what you've got to minimize the damage. If I once I get to minus 40, right, then essentially um, all the processes have stopped. You can store them. At that point, you just have, you just have to store them, store them at a low enough temperature that all the metabolic processes have stopped. Essentially minus 120 or below, the cells are safe. So your damage mechanism is zero to 40 degrees. How do you take something that's just about to nucleate ice and how do we take it from there as fast as possible, as rapidly as possible, so that we can form glass, we can vitrify it down to minus 40, right? So now I'm, I'm, when you thaw it back out again, I have to remove the chemicals because these chemicals are not good for Know, in vivo function. So we flush out the chemicals and we transplant them in. Right? So that's the five steps. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not always, to, at least in liver and kidneys, going from room temperature to four degrees Celsius is not a problem. It's essentially, they do well. But if I'm freezing embryos, for example, or ovarian tissue, going from room temperature to four degrees itself causes damage. Uh, it's not freezing damage, but it's chilling, chilling damage. Essentially, the cells tend to fall apart. And that's also important because we've been trying to work um, cryopreserve ovarian tissues because if you get a can, you know, if you're recovering or if you get cancer treatment, chemotherapy, and one of the functions that we lose is reproductive function, both men and women, you know, that's a, that's a secondary effect of chemotherapy. So can I extract the tissue before the patient goes for chemotherapy and then re-transplant them after they've successfully cured the cancer? So which meant we had to work with those tissues to take them from room temperature, like I said, to minus 120 and back. Wow. So so this has, long, long. This has no, bigger implications. Yeah, much far reaching mm -hmm. than what I was even imagining. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, but you know, that's enough of a cancer survivor. So, I mean, it's a big problem because if you think about it, mm -hmm. if you are 25 year old and you get cancer, you get chemotherapy, you mm -hmm. lose your sperm count. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, same thing happens to females. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, back with, with, of course, with the focus on organ donation, I can see this, I can envision a world where we have organ banks mm -hmm. much similar to what we have with tissue. You know, we've got tissue banks. Mm -hmm. uh, if somebody ha needs a uh, some, some type of orthopedic procedure and they have a ligament 
transplant yeah. or something like that, tendons. Uh, you know, so so that that orthopedist contacts the bank, the tissue processing and bank, and then they obtain the the allograph is what it's called, and they use it for the yep. for the surgery. So so this would be very similar. Like if yep. someone all of a sudden develops liver failure for whatever reason, you can take a look at the, the organ bank, and mm-hmm. you yep. know we can potentially have it stored. If you, like you said, if you can store it for twenty four hours, you can stored for 24 years, uh, the, the impact on the number of lives saved is just astronomical. And, you know, people tend to forget that, you know, these liver diseases and uh, these kidney problems are not because the patient was at fault or, you know, this is just things that happen right. to even what you would consider to be good people. Yeah, and healthy. Uh, you know, so, people, some, absolutely. so what we see oftentimes when we're helping facilitate uh, heart transplants, for instance, that is someone who's pr- completely healthy and then they develop some kind of virus. It could be like a cold and then it, it causes viral cardiomyopathy and completely right. destroys the heart. So, you know, it's, it's not just someone who's done damage, you know, and, and again, we're talking, like you mentioned, hundreds of thousands of people who, who are needing uh, you know, or life-saving organs. There's hundreds of thousands more who are who are not on the list. Mm. You know, right. because it's hard to get on the list because it's such. Uh, you know, it's such a, a challenge with with trying to save as many of the sickest it's patients. Precious commodity, I guess. Precious commodity, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, how do we follow the progress of your research, Doc? Yeah, I publish papers. We go to conferences. We are not, universities are not in the selling business. At least I am not. So we don't go around, you know, we don't do what companies do, like put everything out as a newspaper, right? right? Uh, But, you know, remember research takes time. This is not, this is not, I wouldn't, first of all, if anybody comes and tells you they can solve this problem in the next six months to a year, you know, they're selling you snake oil. So that's something you should, it's not going to happen. So it is a long-term problem. You make, science always works, you know, in small steps. But if you look back on it on 20, 30 years, you know, that's when you see the change. You will not yeah. see it in the six-month time frame. Right. So I, I can see it in my 25 years. And we have, you know, we've done tremendous change, you know, abilities. When I was doing this research, we could freeze only cells. Now we can freeze, you know, organs that are at about, you know, centimeters level, right? Centimeter size, centimeters. Mm-hmm. Right, maybe maybe an inch. Right, so that's a huge that's, in twenty-five years. If yeah. this scales up another twenty years, we got ourselves in our heart, right? Right. So right. so that's what I'm seeing. So I, I won't. I, won't, I don't want to promise you that you know you're going to hear from me next week. I solve the problem. Yeah. I don't see that. We'll call you in twenty-five years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we we do love that that you took the time. Uh, this was your first podcast. You were telling us, so we appreciate that. Yes, uh, we also is. and thank. Yeah, we appreciate our partnership with with LSU. We uh, partner with Dr. Jinx Broussard and Sadie uh, Wilkes um, in the PR and campaigns department. And so they help us to educate folks about donations. So uh, for me, it it was kind of neat to hear you um, in in your research and how um, education just is key in in all of these elements. Glad to be here. Uh, Like I said, thank you for having me. All right. Dr. Ram Devaretti, thank you very much. And we hope to hear from you again here on The Gifted Life. Here 
Here on The Gifted Life, we take a moment for mental health. Social anxiety. Sarah, Mm -hmm. I'm very anxious to see what you got to say about this. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about social anxiety, not just like, you know, this doesn't mean that you're simply, you know, an introverted person. Social anxiety disorder is real and it actually affects about 7% of Americans. So that's a pretty big number, Um, especially when the pandemic started. We're seeing a lot of adolescents and children really start experiencing this now that, you know, we're starting to open back up. People aren't wearing masks as much. We're going to restaurants. We're going out. Big venues, concerts. They're back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's 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 all happening. And is it you just know, not knowing how to act again in, in front of me? So that definitely is compounding the issue. Yeah. So if you already have social anxiety, this is going to worsen it. The pandemic mm-hmm. has really, really taken a toll on people, especially now that we're getting back. And even, you know, we were talking with our engineer Troy earlier and he and I both were saying, yeah, and big crowds, like we feel it. We mm-hmm. feel that social anxiety of how do we talk? What do we and how do we interact normally like we did before this? So it's definitely real and it's definitely affecting a lot of people. Is it just like they don't feel like they belong or they just can't function in that environment? So the signs of social anxiety disorder, it's dread, fear of rejection, worry, judgment in those social environments. So it's avoiding them. It's not being able to go into social. I mean, we all know people who when you talk about going to a party, they get just so anxious and they almost can't do it. Or they mm-hmm. leave early or it's just very, very difficult. They have a lot of dread in that moment. A lot of internalization of what do I say? How do I say it? How do I interact well? I see I see how the, the pandemic could completely negatively impact those mm-hmm. who've suffered from social anxiety in the past. Mm-hmm. And then now you have this pandemic that everyone is isolated. Everyone is. Yep. Th- so these things aren't taking place. Right. And so it, it almost drives that. You know, that comfort zone of being alone for mm-hmm. a while now. I don't have to worry about all this other stuff, This these yeah. parties and these concerts. And, and now that things are back open, mm-hmm. it's like it, it seems like, a, a you know, opening up a gaping wound. Yeah, so, well, so to speak. all those skills that people who are socially anxious learned, they unlearned when the right. pandemic exactly. happened because they didn't have to do it. So now exactly. they have to pick back up on their skills and it's going to be a process. Right. So my first thing would be just take your time. If you have to go to a social event, know that you can leave early if you're feeling very anxious and you need to get out of there. That's okay, But take that first step. Try to expand that comfort zone. Um, Also, silence that inner saboteur. So (laughs) we are our own worst enemies and we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Everybody does um, to socially interact well. Silence it. Let them know, you know, you are loved you are a good person, people want to be with you, you know, challenge those negative thoughts that you have and just take that first step. Tell people, you know, I'm feeling anxious, but I'm going to come and I need help. And if I have to leave early, it's not because I'm being rude and I don't want to be there. It's just because I'm struggling relearning these skills that I had Mm -hmm. previously. My first like public event, like after it was over, like I was exhausted because, you know, you hadn't done it for months. And then I was like, I may have been too loud. Like, you know, all those questions like Mm -hmm. because I was so excited to interact with people. (laughs) I agree. I totally agree. But, you know, I think everybody, once you kind of get back into the swing of things, it'll take a couple of them before before you kind of feel like normal. It's just unnatural. Because it was natural for so long. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we get closed up. Yeah. Now imagine you said you were so excited to be with people 
imagine if it was you had so much dread, fear, worry mm-hmm. right. about being with people. And then, yeah. you know, and then after you had those negative thoughts of like, oh, my gosh, did I make a good impression, all this stuff? Well, that's doubly worse and can cripple mm-hmm. and isolate and create symptoms of depression for people who have social anxiety. So, And I can see how it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Yes. So so we're very excited to be back together. But, you know, do it at your own pace, everybody, and take your time and don't be so hard on yourself. Exactly. All right. You have a topic you'd like Sarah to cover? Info at thegiftedlife.org. We'd love to hear from you. In our question and answer segment today... TV shows often show organs being transported from the donor to a recipient in an ice chest. Is it really ice and an ice chest? Well, the answer is yes, <laughs> uh, it is. And of course, we talked earlier about you know freezing and all that. Well, currently, the way uh, organs are transported is is through a medium, through uh, a perfusion solution, so to speak. That's cold to keep the the organs at a certain temperature. And of course, you need ice. For that to remain, you know, at that same temperature, and they're they're carried, you know, on depending some some are reusable ice chests, some mm-hmm. are styrofoam ice mm-hmm. chests, but but that's how we're transporting. That's so it. That's why it's, TV got it, it right. Yeah, that's why it's so exciting looking at this potential new future there. Yeah, I was even um, I had a family friend text me because they were on a commercial airline and there was somebody on the plane with an ice chest and they were wearing scrubs. And the plane asked everybody to, you know, stay seated so somebody could deboard. And it was the person with the ice chest. And they immediately texted me and they're like, was that an organ? Like, was that going somewhere? Can yeah. they do that? Where was the security? Like, what? <laughs> yeah. all these questions. questions. And, yes. I, and so I had to say, yes, like it's they are transported in an ice chest yep. and a solution that keeps them safe and keeps them temperature controlled and that it can be on a commercial airline, a helicopter, an ambulance. It all depends on the organ and how fast it has to get to where it's going. So yep. it's real. We use, uh, of course, we use commercial for kidneys all the time because right. they have the 24 hour period as opposed to six hours. Right. So Whereas like that. for a heart, it might be a helicopter because right. it has to get there quicker. And it's, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or a, a charter flight. Right. So. That must have been exciting in person. Like I, I heard mm-hmm. some of this. I see it because I just see it in, in TV and uh, Grey's Anatomy and those kinds of things. So here's the truth behind what you're seeing, guys. All right. Maybe you have a question for us. You can give us a call. 504-648-3477. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero is Jacob Dwayne Henry. And we learn about Jacob from his family. Jacob was born May 21, 1993. Jacob was a preemie three months early and weighed three pounds and six ounces. He was perfect, absolutely nothing wrong. We were so blessed. Jacob was an absolute great child. Then he became a very outstanding young man. He loved everyone. He was the happiest person I have ever known. He would help anyone. He found his dream job at Safe Light and he was great at it. Jacob loved riding his motorcycle, playing games online, camping, fishing, and work. Then one night in June, Jacob was riding his motorcycle and got into a serious accident. He was on life support for three days, then he passed away. He was a donor. He's still helping people even after he's gone from our lives. He will always be our hero. We love you, Jacob. Forever 28. And now we pause and say thank you to Jacob for the gift of life. (music) 
And that is going to do it for episode 178 of The Gifted Life. Thanks for listening, guys. Remember, you can register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor anytime. Registerme.org. Thanks also to Dr. Ram Devereddy for playing such a big role in potentially saving so mm-hmm. many more organs and tissues later. Yeah, like we're all excited about yeah. what's to come and what he's working on and then just the potential. Yeah. Like, wow. And he explained it to where we could all understand, yeah. right? Like Even good me. stuff, right? Even <laughs> me, right? The best place to find us, guys, is on our website, thegiftedlife.org. You can listen to any of our episodes on our website or anywhere you listen to your podcast, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. And always remember to rate, review, and subscribe so that others can find us. On social media, please like our page on Facebook, The Gifted Life Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. Our hope is that you share what you heard here on The Gifted Life and these episodes. Uh, We hope that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreau, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Caraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. 